You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Um, we're glad to be here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, this weekend, it's been rough getting here. <laughs> yes. Well, we, yeah, we had a snowstorm, and uh, which was, I didn't expect to get that much snow on the ground, usually, because it never got below 29 here that I could see. And normally for that much snow to stick, it has to get down to like 25, 24, yeah. something like that. Well, and your daughter measured what four and a half inches. Yeah, it I was, mean, it was nuts. So I mean, it must have just like just fallen dumped. all at once. Like, <laughs> yeah. So uh, then we had the attack of the cedar trees. Um, yeah, yeah. Then the cedar trees. Love is in the air. Yeah. Oh my so, gosh. Um, but yeah. So it's this is the first episode we're recording in 2021. It'll be the second one to air. So we've made it quite a while. We've gone quite a week. Well, we started in 2018. So that's crazy. We're, I mean, October, <laughs> so we're not quite two and a half years into doing this. But the fact that I, I, I'm just shocked at how well we've managed to stay on schedule. <laughs> I mean, because it's us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> no, it's, it's turned out pretty good. I mean, it's, uh, it's been fun. So, uh, and I'm, I'm loving the people we're meeting through this because yeah, that's probably the best part. And, I did have a question. I, do, I actually I want to Uh-oh. answer this on the air. Oh, no. I don't have a question for you, but I have a question I want to answer that someone asked. Oh, okay. Um, just a bit of housekeeping. Uh, somebody asked about our notes, um, finding show notes, and uh, it was Phil. And Phil, I appreciate your question. Um, the show notes we do want to have those up. We have a team who does a great job. They're vol- all volunteers, oh, so we don't like we don't harass them about getting everything up on a timely fashion um we just get it whenever they get them and and i'm way behind because that's kind of my (laughs) side of things and i've i've just had a crazy year and so i have been relying on the kindness of strangers in a lot of ways and so i want to say thank you to the people who have been doing our show notes it's been a huge help yes it and it's kind of funny because like a team of people that across countries uh, yeah, it's an international team, yeah. actually. <laughs> <laughs> Which is kind of amazing. It just kind of speaks to the technology. We didn't go out uh, and try to find these people. Like I said, they volunteered. and I, I put a request in the paddle store. Oh, you put a... Uh, yeah, okay. I said, would you like to help? And I got just a great response. And then one of our uh, helpers had twins. Another one got a new job. And so, you know, they've had things in their lives, too. Yeah. So, so we, we do try to get those up as quick as we can. Um, the reason that we don't have just cut them, paste them over from Emily's notes is because she writes them all out by hand so it makes it a bit difficult to uh, yeah do that. but we do have uh so when our show notes go up basically we have some people who listen to the show and then make notes they basically kind of uh, make them after the fact based on what they what we reference and yeah things like that and then well, emily, emily then fills in uh with our uh with her references and books and things like that and uh the uh one of the, the question was asked is do we should we put them on Patreon to try to drive traffic there? And I don't think so. I want the whatever we discuss on this show, I want it to be out there for free. Right. This is we just love doing this. And so we want all that out there for people to have and to share because the church needs these resources. Mm-hmm. I think anyway. 
Well, and, and double it, check what we're saying. Yeah, and double yeah, exactly. Double check what we're saying. I mean, that's <laughs> I need someone to check what I'm saying to yeah, myself sometimes. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, and that's one thing too. You know, we we will um, we'll tell people to check what we're saying, and, but we don't tell them the specific Google search to put in <laughs> to find that one document that you know we'll put you we'll put out the documents that we use. Right. But uh, we also don't say, hey, when you're checking us, only look at these documents. You know, right. look around, find other stuff, and. Uh, you know, I think on the most recent or the episode or two ago, I mentioned something about tithing and I said, hey, I'm willing to change my mind on that if someone can, can bring it up. That's just an example of one of the many things we're willing to change our minds about <laughs> if convinced otherwise. Um, but it well, has to be brought through scripture and plain reason. <laughs> yeah, well, and you actually wrap another stuff. So if there's anybody out there who wants to do transcription work with these handwritten notes... <laughs> I've had like a couple of people volunteers and it's always fallen through. But yeah, because I've got hundreds of pages of handwritten notes that people have asked me for and I just don't have time. So yeah, well, and, and, and just even just scanning those in would take hours. Oh my goodness. Yeah, there's like notebooks, so the three and four inch notebooks full of these things. So, so yeah. So yeah, I, that's a, I mean, I, I just wanted to, to touch on that and say, that we appreciate one that you're interested in the notes. Right. Um, and we are getting those up as quick as we can. It's just not. Uh, oh, and I'm going to try, that's going to be one of my new year things that I need to get on. Um, uh, especially now that we can kind of get ahead and recording again, because for a while we were really just rushing to keep up with the yeah. recording schedule. Yeah, so we're we're going to try. Yeah. Said. We're getting our recording schedule back. Hopefully this year, um, we were kind of starting to get on track last year and then the pandemic hit and then things got really weird. So, yeah, we won't even go into all the factors of weirdness there. So, yeah. so everyone, I, I know that's kind of lengthy, but thanks for sticking with us. But um, we appreciate it. Yeah, we really do. <laughs> um, so that being said, um, speaking of notes, we're moving and resources. We're moving into a new yeah. book. So I assume you're, you've got some resources you're going to tell us about. Is that what we're doing? Well, this? actually, no, okay. we're not. Because uh, even though we're moving into a new book within the Bible, it's the same book. Oh, I got you. Got because you. Yeah, most of your commentaries are the are first and second. Exactly. Well, most of them are first and second, or even if you have two volumes for Samuel, uh, they'll be written by the same person. Sure. So okay. uh, we're sticking with pretty much who we've had, um, Bergen, Zamora, uh, Rigaman, and I'm missing, oh, my art scroll, which love the yep. art scroll. So we've got those, and we are, now, we will very shortly be moving into some more resources because... We're starting to get to that point where Chronicles begins to overlap with um, with Samuel. Right. So I, I want to bring out where, when we get to those points, and I don't want to spend a lot of time right now, but where they disagree or they fill in the gaps, mm -hmm. I want to bring this out. I don't want to ignore when we have differences between the two texts. We want to sure. talk about why those differences are there. Because there, there's a reason for it. And so if we if we pay attention to those purposes and the, the distinctions, we actually learn more than when we try to act like they're not there. And that doesn't mean that the Bible is ruined for us. It just means that people write different things at different times. That's just how it works. Right. So as I said, Second Samuel, that is still set part of the same book. First uh, Samuel goes all the way through to the end of Second Kings, not just Second Samuel. So it's one writer writing what would have been read as almost this epic novel, this great adventure of the foundation of the kingdom. Mm -hmm. So when you read this, you don't want to just stop and, and 
say, oh, well, that's the end of that story. Because as we move forward, you're going to see how this is very much the continuation of those final chapters of First Samuel. And so we, we open up Second Samuel by the writer reminding us where David is uh, and what he's been doing. So we'll just begin with verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag. So David's come home. He, he's there with his armies after he's retrieved all the families. Uh, they've got the news of Saul. And, um, you know, the main point of this timeline that the writer's laying out for us, and we've said this before, is that David is not anywhere around when Saul dies. Right. No one in his army is anywhere around when Saul dies. So, verse 2. On the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. Now, this is a really interesting thing going on here. And there was so much. I mean, I spent so much time pulling all of this apart because the story is so great. And it references back to three distinct stories that have happened before. Okay. So, um... The timeline is being further established, of course, in this verse. So David's been in Ziklag three days, and we know now that there's a minimum of six days that have passed since Saul di- has died. So we, we get that laid out very quickly. And then we also have this very detailed description of the man's appearance, which almost feels out of place, but we know that Saul's dead. Right. What we don't know at this point is what we don't know. And so as we move forward, we're going to see how this man's condition is really bizarre. It doesn't fit whenever you recognize all the cultural things going on within the account. So verse three, David said to him, where do you come from? And said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. Notice that I have escaped from the camp of Israel. In verse four, David said to him, how did it go? Tell me. And he answered, the people fled from battle, and also many people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son, Jonathan, are also dead. So this man, he knows the facts about the battle. I mean, he accurately reports pretty much what we were told in 1 Samuel 31. The people have died. There's been a lot of them who have fled, that Saul's dead. So we, we know that he's got some solid, concrete facts that he's bringing back to David. And we find out that David you know, he, he wants to know more. He wants to know how this happened. And so he begins to question the guy. And the man kind of gives us this story, which is kind of interesting. It's almost like he just happens to be in Gilboa or, or Mount Gilboa. And he saw Saul leaning on his spear and the Philistine chariots and horsemen that, you know, they're closing in. And this is when Saul calls out to him. Mm-hmm. And when Saul calls out to him, uh, he, Saul asks, who are you? And this guy answers, I'm an Amalekite. Well, bells and whistles should be going off in your head right now because he's an Amalekite. Right. So we're going to talk about why that's important. We're going to get through the story first. So verse 9, and he said, talking about Saul, and he said, stand beside me and kill me for anguish has seized me and my life still lingers. So here's where the questions come in and why this whole scene is very problematic. And why is it very different than the last chapter of First Samuel? There's that. Yeah, that's one major issue. And okay, so we got this random Amalekite. Um, you know, we were just told David killed all the Amalekites except for the 400 who escaped. Well, they're in Besor. He couldn't have been at Besor 
and on the battlefield at Mount Gilboa at the same time. So this is a different Amalekite than the one that David had been fighting. Right. Um, he had to escape from the Israelite camp. So is he a prisoner of the Israelites or is he escaping Philistines attacking the, the camp? We've got to answer these questions too. Mm-hmm. So, uh, like I say, the questions we have to ask, are, um, I've already gone through the first three, but the other one is, how does he know so much about Saul? Right. And David knows about Saul's fear. We know about it because we've been following the storyline up to this point. But how does this Amalekite, this outsider, get to know that kind of intimate detail about Saul? And how does he know where to find David? And why does he take it upon himself to personally deliver the king's armlet and crown, which we're going to find out he does? Because this is not like he just happened across David. He, he had to make an, intention, an intentional trip into Philistine country to get there. Right. So these are things that need to be playing in our background of our minds while we're reading through the rest of the story. And we're going to kind of take them apart a little later. So verse 10. So I stood beside him and killed him because I was sure he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I brought them out, brought them to ha- brought them here to my lord. Mm-hmm. So the Amalekite admits that he killed Saul, and he presents it as if it's a mercy killing, but he also presents it as I was fulfilling the king's request, and he offers this proof in this crown and the armlet of Saul, which. Nobody can test. Uh, nobody acts like um, it wasn't there. And this may also explain why when the Philistines captured Saul, it, it wasn't among the things that they took from Saul. They took his armor, and they took his body, but they did not take these things. So, got the nose tickle going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but um, if he honors David as the next king of Israel. It kind of it's weird that he would grieve the death of Saul. And if he doesn't honor David, then why would he bring these things to David? So there there's this contradiction going on. And so, you know, one of the the explanations is that he's straight up lying. That was my guess is that he's trying to ingratiate himself to David and being like so I happened upon the king who was about to die and went ahead to put him out of his misery, and I brought you this really cool stuff. I want to I want to help you out a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and that's traditionally I think how we've read it because you know he's an Amalekite, and so this idea that the Amalekites would go out scavenging among the dead of the fallen during battle that fits with what we know about them, right? And so. You know, it could be, hey, he just put on this, you know, tore his clothes and put dirt on his head so he blends in with everybody else who's running. But there's another option. And in 1 Samuel 31, we kind of get this summary of what had happened. Mm-hmm. And what we've got to remember with, with that story, you know, Saul's doomed. Uh, and a true Israelite, remember, his armor bearer would not kill the king. He was right. scared to do it. And then Saul dies, and then the body was taken. Now, the Amalekite, if he is there, if he was present, only becomes important in his dealings with David. He isn't really significant to the events of chapter 31. He only becomes important in chapter 1 of Samuel 2. And we know 
that the writer of Samuel has this really bad, irritating habit of not putting details in if he considers them to be superfluous. Sure. And we saw this with the Witch of Endor back in chapter 28, where all of a sudden we're told Saul had put all the necromancers and mediums out of the land. Mm -hmm. But before this, we hadn't heard anything about that. And we're going to see that he's going to do this again and again. This is just part of his writing style. Um, So we have to remember that a prior omission doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means it wasn't important to the story until now. Again, this is speculation because the writer doesn't specifically tell us. But evidently, David thinks there's some credibility to the story, or at least he thinks there's enough reason to, to be upset about even telling such a story because we're going to see David's response isn't uh, the most restrained. Right. So, verse 11, Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, so did, so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. Now, it's interesting to note that it's not just David who does this. He, he does it, his men do it. And what we need to remember about his men, these men had lost their country too. They had lost their homes. They'd lost their land. They had lost everything they could have possibly had whenever mm -hmm. they followed David into the Philistine country. Even by associating with David, they were risking their life. But yet they're willing to mourn the, the death of their sworn enemy. And so this really is a good insight into how good leadership impacts the way people view things and how they feel about things and how an effective, what an effective leader David was. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of the key things about David. When David is walking with God, he knows how to direct the people's hearts back to God and in alignment with what God would have. And that's one of the things that's so crucially different about him from Saul. Right. So in verse 13, David said to the young man who told him, where do you come from? And he answered, I am a son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. So this is what I found to be really fascinating about this whole story. A sojourner is a foreigner who's living in the land of Israel. Uh, they probably haven't converted to Judaism at this point. They are living there, but they are an Israelite. So remember, if you're, when you want to cease to be a part of a nation, mm -hmm. you stop doing the practices of that nation. You stop following the religion of that nation. Sure. So if you don't want to be an Amalekite, you stop living like an Amalekite. So he hasn't gotten to full membership status, if you will. He hasn't got the gold card. He's just part of the community. And they kind of exist in this, this in-between state that's not, you know, they aren't who they were, but they aren't totally who they could be at this point in time. And, and the rules and the laws around sojourners are very explicit in the Torah. Right. And so there were, there were minimal requirements for living in Israel as a sojourner, as far as what the sojourner themselves was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. uh, one, the holidays and feasts that required rest had to be observed. So the Sabbath had to be observed. Um, not necessarily that they would participate in worship, but they would not be doing any work. Right. Sacrifices had to be made at the temple or the tabernacle, depending on which one was being used. And this prohibited them 
from going out and making sacrifices to foreign gods and other places or doing things unsupervised. So this way, Israel knew that there weren't any other uh, idolatrous sacrifices being made in their land. Okay. No eating blood. Uh, if an animal was killed, the blood had to be drained and the blood had to be Buried. covered. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Sexual prohibitions from Leviticus had to be observed. And so that was Leviticus 18. You can read through that, and the Bible's very specific. They could not blaspheme the name of the Lord, and they couldn't murder other people. So those are six prohibitions. Mm -hmm. That's all you had to do to live in Israel, which I think a lot of people find surprising because we have this idea that Israel only allowed other Israelites to live there. Right. Yeah, there's been quite a... Quite a smear campaign against the Jews, apparently. Uh, oh, you shouldn't so, bring this I, up. <laughs> no, I joined this Facebook group this week because, you know, me. And I never join the groups I join because I, I join groups to see what's out there. I was laughing because I derailed you, not because of bad things happening to Jews. Yeah, yeah. I, no, I, I no one even, wants that. No. Well, I don't anyway. Well, and this group is all about the, the Talmud. And there are some questionable things in the Talmud. Don't get me wrong. And, you know, it's one thing to say, hey, I have a problem with this kind of writing or what this says. It's another thing to vilify an entire race based on something one person said. Right. And so it just, and I have just been shocked. I mean, I knew it was out there and I knew historically the Jews have been attacked and persecuted. Mm -hmm. But to see this kind of vitriol today from good Christians. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. Okay. It is. Yeah. We, we don't treat people that way. We just don't. And I, I don't understand why Christians think it's, think it's okay to speak about anyone this way, including Jews, especially Jews. So, yeah. I'm sorry. I got, like, when I read through the page, like, I, I had to stop because I could feel my blood pressure just... I understand. Yeah. So, a lot of those groups on my page... I'd probably be a happier person if I removed some of the. Well, I mean, part of it is just staying informed of 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 what we need to be watching out for in some areas. The church needs correction, and and where we can work on some of that. I mean, there's, I mean, you don't have to go far in a lot of these quote unquote Christian pages to find a whole lot of. I mean, I hate to use the term necessarily, but hate speech. I mean, just people inciting bad things to having. I mean, to to people they disagree with. I mean, are are you know when we had Amy Bird on the podcast, she's taken some serious flack just for uh, you know, having an opinion that differs from others. Yeah. And, and then having her opinion misrepresented to incite more that's, people. That's that's what's <laughs> frust that's the real frustrating side of it is is you ask these people, what has she done that is so terrible? And they can't actually give you an answer. Right. Because they haven't read her work. They've only read what other people have said about it. Exactly. And I tell you, that, that'll get you in a lot of trouble real quick. Well, and that's part of the reason why I join these groups. Because when people say, oh, well, this person's saying this or that, I want to know who, who's actually saying it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, and I want to hear... Who's they? Yeah, who's they and what are they actually saying? But anyway, now that we've chased that rabbit down and killed it. Um, <laughs> so the, the laws... For the sojourners, not really that difficult. Uh, we see those reflected in Acts 15 with the, for the Gentile Christians who are converting into the new faith. Um, 
But the laws put in place to protect the sojourners was what I found to be so interesting. Uh, probably the one we're most familiar with, and we don't realize it is specifically for the foreigner who's coming through the country, is gleaning. Mm-hmm. And so when Ruth was out gleaning in Boaz's field, she was doing something that was set aside specifically so that people who weren't Israelites coming through the land could be blessed and experience some goodness while they were in Israel. And, you know, that's huge because we, we can talk about, and I don't want to get too political, but I mean, think about today when we're talking about refugee situations where we go, oh, no, this is ours, this is ours, we have to defend it. And we can talk about how far right or left we should go with these arguments. But we still have that mindset, is what I'm trying to point out, that we defend our country and we keep our resources to ourselves. But in the Torah, here's this great example of we want to take care of whoever is with us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's rarely taught by people who don't love our Bible. But the most interesting verse— I'm going to say what's—I mean, it's it's very— the question—and I know we can (laughs) talk about that for hours and hours, because we have before. But the question is, in— I hate to use this term because it's not actually true. Post-agrarian. We're, ne- right. we're never going to be post-agrarian as long as we have to eat. Right. Um, but in a, in a society that's kind of, you know, a step or two removed from being very agrarian, um, how do we implement that practically? And so that's the homework for everyone. If you have some answers <laughs> to that, let us know. Because right. I would love to see some better examples of how we do that practically. And of course, I know there are legal issues and things that we have to to consider. And again, I'm not going to, having not prepared for this talk, I'm not going to bring out my opinions. Um, <laughs> well, and I didn't, didn't want to get... I'm just curious about how, what are some ways we can be better at that as a church at taking care of people? So, Well, yeah. And I, I didn't really want to get into the political side of it. I just wanted to point out that we as human beings, this is our mindset. Mm-hmm. And, and oh, it's yeah. been that mindset since the beginning of time. But the, the verse that just really, uh, this was the one that floored me. It's Leviticus 25, 35. It says, if a brother becomes poor and cannot ma- maintain himself with you. Notice this is about a brother. So this is a fellow Israelite. It says, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall, and he shall live with you. So notice the command isn't to treat the sojourner like the brother, mm-hmm. it's to treat the brother like the sojourner because that's how high the standard for taking care of foreigners in your midst was. Hmm. And I mean, that, that's kind of mind-blowing that it's totally opposite to what so many of us have been taught. Oh, yeah. And, and you can see how it foreshadows what Jesus has to say about loving your enemy as yourself, the Good Samaritan story, and all of these other things that we think are so unique to Christianity. The seeds for it are here in the Torah. Yeah. And so I, I love that. So if this guy is a sojourner, this guy who reported to David is a sojourner, he has protected status in Israel, despite being a Malachite, hmm. because if he's in Israel and he is a sojourner, he's not doing the things that the Amalekites did. And so he's therefore not totally an Amalekite. That just happens to be his place of origin, which, thank God, he doesn't hold against us our place of origin, which Fair is enough. kind of the whole story of salvation. And if he wanted to be protected under the laws of the Torah, then he had to honor the Torah. Now, as a sojourner, we wouldn't be surprised 
to see him on the battlefield with the, the troops of Israel. We've already seen that David's had Abimelech, the, the Hittite, with him in 26, 26, 1 Samuel. And later he's on, he's going to have Uriah the Hittite. And this would explain why the guy had to escape from the camp of Israel is because he was one of the soldiers. It would also explain why he mourned, because the guys being killed all around him would have been his neighbors and friends. Sure. People he had lived and worked with. It could even be even been his family. It would also explain why he knew so much about Saul, knew so much about David, and why he saw it as his duty to bring Saul's things to David. Yeah. However, nothing's ever, you know, just the nice... It's not, not ever quite that cut and dry. <laughs> Especially not with, the, with Samuel, because whatever problems this clears up for us to this point kind of become problems later at, you know, with what follows. So verses 14 through 16, David said to him, how is it that you are not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's, put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And David called to one of the young men and said, go execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, your blood be on your head, for your mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So. I'm a little frustrated that David did not wait for an answer. <laughs> right. I would like to hear, or at least that it's not recorded. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, but here's the thing. Do, does the king of Israel have to explain himself? Right. Uh, and does he really need any kind of explanation to justify what he does. So the, the rabbis seem to feel that, feel that he do, does, uh, and they go into great lengths of trying to explain this because some of the problems posed is as a sojourner, he would have had that protected status. Even if he killed Saul, he was following a royal, royal command, and you don't refuse those. But according to the Torah, you cannot punish someone for a crime unless there's two witnesses and the testimony or confession of a single individual is not the testimony of two witnesses so even a confession is not enough for um a conviction so <laughs> that's the reason why david shouldn't have done this but the complicating factors with that is he is an amalekite and he's in one of the nations that the that the Torah said he should have been destroyed over and over again. Uh, physical evidence can be considered a secondary witness. So the fact that he had the crown right. and the armlet band, yeah. So then we've got another problem in trying to answer this because a lot of times when a story doesn't have good, clear meaning Details. to it, yeah, <laughs> it, you, know, you have to go back to those, those retellings or the, the foundational stories to, to take them apart. So where do we go? Because we could go back to Samuel hacking King Agag to death. Sure. I think we can see the, the similarities there. Or do we go to Saul killing the priest of Nov? These, these are the two stories that we see the primary themes playing with. So if we go back to Nov, let's start there. Okay. Saul had accepted a singular testimony of an Edomite, a, a foreigner who could have also been a sojourner. And we remember, you know, um, Doeg, the Edomite, had been detained before the Lord at the tabernacle where, when David had gone there to take the showbread. 
And so Saul had ordered that his men kill the priest of Nob, and they all refused. And so Saul orders Doeg uh, to, to carry out the execution because he was the one who had witnessed the supposed wrong. So if we compare David's acts here in, in, first, in 2 Samuel to 1 Samuel 22, we have this really weird reversal where a foreigner, a foreigner bears witness not against God's people but against himself. David is, sorry, David is convicted by the king. Sorry, not David. I had one of those moments where my brain went Doeg. hazy. Yeah, Doag is convicted by the king for an act wrongly committed against God's anointed. So basically, Doeg says, hey, the priest did wrong by you, Saul. You, they, they did something that shouldn't have been done to you as the king. Mm. And this is why Saul says, hey, you need to go kill him. So one person's testimony, this foreigner's testimony, puts, his, puts the priest in danger. So when Saul gives that order, the, the men that are following Saul basically said, no, we're not going to do it. We cannot touch, not necessarily God's anointed, because priests are anointed, mm. but we can't touch God's sacred people. Right. And so it takes a foreigner who's willing to actually carry through with the execution. And in this case... David's men, you know, turn around and immediately do what David said. They, there's no hesitation. And if you'll remember back when Achish, the priest, goes to David after all the other priests have been killed, David says, I knew on that day that Doeg the Edomite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. So David totally accepts the guilt mm-hmm. in that situation. He says, this is my fault. In 2 Samuel 1, David rejects any personal guilt and places it directly on the shoulders of the Amalekite, who claims to have killed Saul. So he enacts justice for the king who was a murderer, and he enacts it against a murderer, uh, you know, the king who murders God's priest and the king who makes David think that he's even a murderer. And so we see this moment where David steps out of this idea that he somehow bears responsibility for everyone. And he still has the responsible side of him as a king, mm-hmm. that he is responsible for the well-being of his people. But he begins to make the distinction between how people under him act versus how he maintains himself. Mm-hmm. There, there's not that confusion, because before, when he was willing to accept the, the guilt for the death of the priest at Nob, it wasn't him who killed them, it was Saul. And sure. Saul acts completely unjust, and he doesn't do anything according to, quote-unquote, the book. And David doesn't even, in his mind, he doesn't care that it's a mercy killing. He doesn't care that it was Saul's decree. And I think this is a really interesting picture because in David's mind, Saul's status had not changed based on condition or behavior. Right. And there's probably a great message in that for a lot of people to hear. Our position does not change. Our status does not change based on condition or behavior. Right. Right. So now, does that mean that we should just do whatever we want? No, but the fact that God is uh, faithful is a pretty big is a pretty big thing that we we often forget. So anyway, we'll go keep going. So as a king, David has the right and responsibility to to ex- exact justice in the situation, and and it's a it's his royal prerogative. It's also his royal obligation. This Amalekite has touched God's anointed. That's all it boils down to for David. 
-hmm. Nothing else matters. And when you flip that around where Saul's willing to kill the priest, you begin to see this huge contrast in the, in, in the way the two men approach situations. And I think we also need to remember, too, there was this thing where most disputes were settled at the gates of the city. The, the elders and the tribal leaders would all gather together, and they would hear both sides. And this is where the two witnesses come mm. in, and they would present their evidence. As a king, when something was presented to them, they didn't have to follow those rules because the king is the representative of God and he acts on God's behalf, just like Moses. Moses didn't need the consensus of the elders to do what he wanted to do. Matter of fact, if Moses had listened to the elders, the people who gathered at the gates, mm -hmm. then they would have gone back to Egypt. Right. And so in this way, David is saying, hey, I'm going to inhabit this position. And I think that's really what the story shows us on some levels is how David inhabits his position of being the responsible party of the nation of Israel. He doesn't shy away from it. And Saul just never seems to get there, not in the same level that David does. So another story we need to consider is 1 Samuel 15. Saul had um, carried out God's command to attack the Amalekites. However, he stops just short. He keeps King Agag alive. He keeps the best animals alive. And they were to, supposed to be devoted to God under Kerem, that, that total destruction mm -hmm. as a type of wartime sacrifice. And one of the things we should remember when Saul does this, by keeping the king of the Amalekites alive, he's keeping the representative of the Amalekite God alive. And he's actually inviting that God, quote unquote, into his house. And so this is not a good thing. Okay. So when Samuel confronts Saul and says, hey, you know, you screwed up and obedience is better than sacrifice. This is also the same time that God tells Samuel, or, sorry, God tells Saul through Samuel that God's rejected him as a king and that the crown is going to be given to Saul's neighbor who's better than him. Now, Samuel then commands that Agag be brought to him. And Samuel hacks Agag to pieces. And we're also told at this point, this is when God regrets making Saul king. Mm -hmm. So the events that connect us, uh, we got Amalekites, of course. We have the king of Israel. We have the death of a king. And we have brutal retribution against the Amalekites. So in some ways, 2 Samuel 1 is a story of just desserts. If Saul had killed the Amalekites like he was supposed to, then there wouldn't have been an Amalekite to come and kill him. Right. And we also have this thing where what happened symbolically in 1 Samuel 15, which is Saul being stripped of the crown, happens literally in 2 Samuel 1. Mm -hmm. The Amalekite and how he invited the Amalekite into his home with King Agag, or invited the Amalekite to come kill him in 1 in 2 Samuel 1, these are both times he loses his crown. Hmm. The first time, it's symbolically when God rejects him. Sure. Second time, it's literally when the Amalekite takes the crown from his body. Hmm. Wow. That's an interesting tie. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I hadn't considered that before, but that's what we do here. We you know what's really fun? Is I didn't see anyone else make it either. So <laughs> that one, that's me. 
But I, I, I think there's something to that about inviting those things into your life to have an impact. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the thing is, th there's this great picture of our lives. Because we can invite evil or representatives of evil into our life. Mm -hmm. And they can inflict great damage. And ultimately, we can bear responsibility for saying, hey, I invited them. I, I made the, 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 the situation, the circumstances that allowed them to become a part of my life. Mm -hmm. But in the end, God's still going to hold evil accountable for the damage it does to us. Mm -hmm. And so there's a great, I think there's a great picture there. God is not going to say, well, you know. You hold demonic powers. You were just doing what they asked you to. It's right, okay. No right. big deal. They're still going to be judged. No one gets away with just following orders. No. <laughs> so, but David, it, it, he's vindicated in his act against the Amalekite for two reasons. It, it, it's his duty as a king to wipe out the Amalekites. This is according to the Deuteronomy um, command. And it's his duty as a king to protect God's anointed against all threats. Number two, it's his duty as a prophet to root out and confront evil within the nation mm -hmm. and to reject compromise even when it looks like compassion. And if you really take some time and go through some of the prophetic writings, it's amazing how many times that evil is not presented as something that, oh, this is horrible oppression going on in the land. I mean, there are those times, but most of the time, it's evil masquerading as compassion. We're letting people do what they want. <laughs> We're giving them what they like. Everybody's happy. Be who you want to be, and God's okay. And so, you know, this, this Amalekite comes to David dressed as one who's grieving the fate of Israel. He, he acts like he is really upset about what's happening. But David, like Samuel, like the prophet who anointed him, isn't going to entertain any um, excuses. So, so I'm sorry. I have I got nothing. <laughs> I know I know your allergies are killing you, and it's a lot of talking. But um, no, I I really don't have much to comment on here. I mean, other than that, that is an interesting tie back to the the Amalekite. I hadn't hadn't considered that. But you know, I think that's one of the really cool things about going through a book like I'm getting to do for the. Um, so okay, they're getting to do like I'm getting to do with the uh, the podcast because I spend a lot of time just going over this just verse by verse by verse. And I've got it all compressed where mm -hmm. I'm I'm not spending like, you know, five minutes on this chapter and five minutes on that chapter. I'm actually getting to. Yeah. Yeah. We can kind of make our own timeline here and actually pull stuff out. And, you know, I. I I do think it is funny whenever I hear other podcasters talk about how they're pressed for time and they don't want to go into stuff. I'm like, it, it's a podcast. You got all, <laughs> all, all the time you need, really. Just do it next week. Yeah. Well, and, and that's the thing. I mean, there's so many good things. And I may have said this on the air before, but when I taught, one of the things that I would do is I would always open up uh, in the classes it was appropriate to do this with uh, Genesis 1, uh, verses 1 through 3. Mm -hmm. I would talk about those for up to three hours, just those three verses, right? Just to show students how in depth we could go, and then remind them I hadn't even broken it down as far as we could, right? And so we, yeah, you kind of just have to pick a point and go, yeah. If I go any further, I'm just going to be boring most people to tears, even though I might find it interesting. So, uh, but you might think. 
having gone through those two stories, we've we've exhausted the the tiebacks. No, I don't, because uh, you told me before we started that we're touching on three stories. Okay, yeah. So our third story. Uh, give myself away. First uh, Samuel four twelve through twenty two. So in verse twelve, I'm going to read what it says. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. Mm-hmm. Now we're coming back to Second Samuel one two. And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with clothes with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. So the two verses, one from First Samuel, one from Second Samuel, almost identical. Right. So, in 1 Samuel, the man is from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, traditionally, this guy is believed to be Saul. That's actually what it says in the Talmud, some of the, the teachings on this passage. And he's returning from, to Shiloh to report that the ark has been captured by the Philistines. Okay. Eli's sons, they're dead, fulfilling the prophecy that God had rejected his house. Now, if we compare the two stories in Hebrew, you see something that you'll miss in English. In 1 Samuel 4.12, the man is wearing a mod, which is just, it's measured clothing. It's clothing that's been made to fit him. Okay. It, it conforms to a certain standard, like a uniform, and it's what warriors would wear to battle. Okay. In 2 Samuel 1.2, the man is wearing a baguette, which is kind of a catch-all phrase for whatever. It's just clothing. It's not a specific... <laughs> he put clothes on before he left the house. Pretty much. And so this could be a little bit of a clue as to what the man is doing. He isn't dressed for battle. He may not have been a part of the fight at all. Mm-hmm. He may have just been plundering the wounded and the dead. Right. So, you know, this is a pretty um, pretty flimsy case to build your... Uh, to build any kind of case on. Pretty flimsy fact to build uh, a case on. But if it was a ruse that he was, this guy's lying to David, you could see how this might tip David off because David would be smart enough to know what it looked like when a man was involved in this kind of battle. Sure. And so there's that possibility. But even if that's not, and, and I just throw that in there because I think it was kind of interesting. Um, the purpose of the story is to connect Saul's death back to 1 Samuel 4. So there's several reasons why this, this connection is important. Saul rose to power to, rise to power begins and ends with Hannah's prophecy. Mm-hmm. Hannah's prophecy was a protest against corrupt leadership and the need for deliverance through supernatural intervention. Right. So Hannah's prophecy is aimed at the corruption at Shiloh, but I think we all know that it fits more than one scenario. Absolutely. So she reveals that God's uh, purpose in God's uh, rule is to displace corrupt leadership, Eli and his sons killed in battle, and the restoration and elevation of those who have been harmed by corrupt leadership. So just like Eli's house had to be removed because it still contained those seeds from Egypt that they brought along with them, mm-hmm. Saul has to be removed because Israel can't be ruled by a king who's like a king from any other nation. Right. And so... It's the picture of how God's kingdom operates, and, and it's consistent with throughout Scripture. If we read Luke 4, 18 and 19, this is Jesus um, in the synagogue. He, he's reading on a Sabbath, and this is considered to be the formal launch of his ministry. He reads from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 as the defining mandate for his mission. Listen to this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, 
and to set liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the, the year of the Lord's favor. So if you go back and read Hannah's prophecy in 1 Samuel 2, there's going to be so many parallels. And so you're going to find the exact kind of language in her prophecy, what Isaiah is saying and what Jesus is saying. The purpose of God's kingdom is always about displacing corrupt leadership mm-hmm. so that those who have been harmed can be brought out of it and elevated. So in Luke 4.21, Jesus um, rolled up the scroll and he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so Jesus, he comes to displace corrupt leadership present in the sons of God. Mm-hmm. And he were placed over the nations at the, at the Tower of Babel, just as David now comes to replace the corrupt leadership of Saul. So Saul had been anointed by God much the same way that the sons of God had been appointed by God after Babel. And we go back to Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. So if you need to review that, go back to uh, our episode on many gods. Yeah. So a very early one, very, very early one. Or check out uh, Dr. Heiser's uh, Naked Bible. He's got great uh, video presentation of all of this. So. It's out there. So Saul had failed to lead Israel in right and proper obedience and worship of God, and he is displaced by one who now will. And so this this foreshadows how Jesus, the, the ultimate anointed of God, is going to displace the powers that fail to lead people in right and proper worship mm-hmm. of the one God. And, you know, all analogies are going to fail at some point because David's not perfect and he's not going to get everything right. But that's the point. Right. You know, no man is going to be the perfect king for God's kingdom. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, the Bible Project has a great video on it about the Messiah and talking about how David, you know, David was anointed, but he was still corrupt. He was still sinful. And so, I, but it is, it's, it's one of those things, you know, we, it, it's kind of a, a, almost like a sign act, like uh, acting out of this historical uh, event again with another historical event, mm-hmm. but again the act is not the thing. You know, it's it's or the sign is not the thing. Right. It's it's a representation. Well, and, and that's the thing when when you start to see God just very clearly demonstrating this over and over and over again, you begin to see that this is really something that he. He wants us to take seriously. He wants us to see what he's doing. And it's like he's got neon signs everywhere in scripture going, this is what I do. Mm -hmm. This is the work of my kingdom. This Mm -hmm. is what I'm trying to accomplish. And if you want to participate in it, then you need to join me. And you don't get to be, you know, this half in, half out person of the kingdom. You can't be the Amalekite sojourner. You have to be an Israelite or you need to get out. There's no halfway. And so... You know, that, that sounds pretty brutal, but when you think about what's at stake here, this is something that God has to take seriously. Remember, David's role as a king and a prophet, it's to root out evil within the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Why? It's to protect the people. It's to protect his kingdom. It's to protect God's anointed. And we are God's anointed, not by behavior and condition, you know, even if we're dying on the battlefield, that doesn't change our status. Right. So all of these things... That, that seemed like just kind of this narration of this, you know, the story of a battle suddenly become this great theological message mm-hmm. that's pretty freaking amazing if we actually pay attention to what's going on. Right. And so, but, you know, when we see this and we see how, how David 
points us towards Christ. I, I think there's this tendency sometimes to think of Israel, you know, in the golden day of David, when when God was a part of the goings on and God was taking part in in the life of the the daily life of His people. We can There's a little bit of romanticized nostalgia there that that this would be such a wonderful place to live because God's presence is there. And I think we forget sometimes that God's presence is with us. And there's no need to look back and yearn for those days of David. I mean, people were still people. Bad things were still happening. Mm -hmm, You mm -hmm. still had to make a living. You still had kids who did stupid things. I mean, all the things that hurt our hearts today were still very real. And so the, the, the thing is, we can still enact this, this mindset or this, this viewpoint where we can see God at work in our lives today and, and ask, are we participating in the things he's doing? So anyway, moving on. Uh, David reacts to the news of Saul and Jonathan's death um, with a song or a, a dirge mm-hmm. uh, is another word for it. and. Or as the Hebrew says, and I really like this, he lamented with his lamentation. So, you know, very um, nice, emphatic Hebrew there. When you start to get those doubling of the same word, it, they want you to understand that the depths of what they're trying to convey. Yeah. So he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. Uh, now, there's a lot of debate on why David taught the song specifically to the men of Judah. Uh, part of the d- debate is the wording in the Hebrew. The Hebrew is kind of, it's, it's weird. It says, teach the children of Judah the archer's bow. And the ESV, they, they actually follow the, um, the Septuagint on this. And they, they drop the bow part. So the Septuagint uh, leaves it out. Uh, there's some possibilities here uh, that the archer's bow would be the title of the song. And that David is calling Judah to learn how to use bows and other arts of warcraft because that's it's now necessary because the king is dead. Okay, whatever. Uh, Jonathan, I mean, his guys already know how to fight. So to sure. me, that didn't make sense. Uh, Jonathan and Saul were good examples of warriors. This is very true. David's going to tell us about that in his song. Another reason why he's wanting it taught to Judah is he's reminding Judah not to gloat, that the kingship is being transferred now. That's what I would assume, because, yeah, it's like, oh, no, well, now my tribe's the place where the king comes from. And it's very possible, and um, we'll, we'll talk about how that might, might work out. It also could be that David's reminding Judah, stop gloating because you are such great warriors. Judah mm-hmm. was a great tribe when it came to warfare, and we saw that at the end of Judges, when they almost wiped out Benjamin, who had this elite fighting force of left-handed uh, slingers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, is that a word, slingers? I thought Benjamin was the one with the left-handed. That's why I said, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I... Judah, uh, yeah, when they triumphed over. I, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, I must have heard you wrong. Sorry. Uh, uh, I feel like I'm talking through a haze anyway. Uh, but Arbanella, uh, the one of the rabbis, proposed that the word is not bow, but difficulty. And that David is attempting to teach his tribesmen empathy and encouraging them to feel the, the appropriate grief over Saul and his fallen son. And so, you know, the, this fits stylistically with what David's going to say. It doesn't really, I couldn't see it working linguistic, linguistically. So okay. I, 
Like I said, I, I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I couldn't tell you. I'm flying blind on that. Yeah, I, I know. I'm probably just getting into nitty gritty stuff that only those of us who like Hebrew like, uh, because in the end, I bring all this up and I go, I, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's a really well, yeah, and there, and I, I think there's a a fair point to that. You know, there's we can question it, and if we don't have, find an answer, we don't want to make one up. Right. Well. Now, I will offer one, and I think David says teach it to Judah because who's he with? Mm-hmm. I, he's not with anybody else. He's with his men. He's going to travel to Hebron here in a little bit and live in the middle of the Judean um, tribal lands. It would make a simpler answer. What, I mean, see, these are the kinds of answers I like. <laughs> it's like, okay, so let's just look at what's happening. Let's, let's go on and figure this out. Well, I mean, okay, so. You know, mourning was a much bigger deal in, in ancient mm-hmm. cultures, too. I mean, to the point where um, among, I mean, I know this is a totally different culture that I'm going to compare here, but even to the point where the Celts would hire professional mourners at funerals. There's um, evidence of that in, in the Hebrew society, so, too. Yeah, I didn't know if there was or not, but, you know, it could be that this is a king, and mm-hmm. if we're going to mourn a king, it's only appropriate that everyone does it, you know? so. Yeah. um that is a possibility that, that could be there because, you know, let's, let's teach them and then, you know, we have the, our time of mourning and then we're going to make sure we have a, a grand song, a grand display for this. So anyway, that, well, no, that's, it, a, that's just a, off the top of my head. Well, I, the idea of, of celebrating, honoring a king in death, I mean, we see evidence of that throughout the ancient Near Eastern cultures. I mean, we look see, at the pyramids. We see evidence <laughs> of that today. I mean, mm-hmm. look at, I mean, Look at the royal funerals that happen in England still. Right. I mean. And how far in advance they're practiced so that if it happens. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I say that because we're, we're watching The Crown. Because uh, apparently everyone's, it's now required viewing, I guess. it's <laughs> That and Tiger King. <laughs> at least if you're from Oklahoma. <laughs> oh my goodness. We're not going to talk about that show. That show was insane. But it's also like, yeah, I, I kind of know people like that. But. Evidently, we have relatives who who knew him well, too. So anyway, that's a whole other story. We'll talk about it in the paddle store if anyone's curious. So, But uh, we're told specifically that this is uh, recorded in the Book of Jasher. We've done a whole episode on that. Mm-hmm. We do not have a copy of this book. No one has a copy of this book. Everything you can get your hands on today is a forgery. Some of them were very good forgeries, but they are forgeries. Uh, even the rabbis don't agree as to what this book was. Right. One of the things I found out was that some of them believe that it was actually uh, the Torah that's referring back to, to specifically Genesis because Jasher means uprightness. Okay. And so Genesis records the lives of upright men, Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. So uh, they, they consider that. But when you look at the things that are, we're told are recorded yeah. in Jasher. Like, yeah, that's not in there. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work. So that, that's how confused it is. Now, uh, we're also, Jasher is uh, mentioned in Joshua 10, 13. And here, these are the only two places in the Bible. So we do know it existed. Evidently, God didn't consider it important enough to preserve. And so we don't need it for faith. It would be a great book to read because of curiosity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, But one of the things that I thought was really interesting was uh, one of the speculations from the the sages was that it's a book on military tactics. 
that it because of the the time it's referenced in Joshua and here, and so that this idea that it was something that preserved ways of doing military um, well that strategy. would make, that would make sense the way it's referred to so much over such a broad period of time, right? To say that it was recorded in the book of Jasher. It could be these things where they're taking, you know, if you're taking military strategy and then, oh, well, this was a really good idea. Write this one, add it to uh-huh. our collection of, of tactics. That would be interesting. Precisely. Yeah. And so, I, I mean, there, that's conjecture, but it's like one of those things that but makes I can you... See how it could, how, I can see how it could work. Well, the Romans did it. Uh, we've got uh, other names are escaping right now. But we know that other civilizations did this. Right. This would, so if Israel did this, it wouldn't be surprising because it would just be something cultural that, that people did, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. if you're establishing a kingdom. Well, and the fact that it didn't survive would be an important statement. Uh. Now, this is true, too. <laughs> so, anyway, but again, that's conjecture based on conjecture. <laughs> um, yeah, well, you know, this, that's the other oddities the things. Thought experiments, so... Uh, those, yeah. those are the fun parts of trying to, to figure all this out and trying to just dive in. And sometimes you ask these questions to get you back to the scripture. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. you, you kind of play it out as far as you can and kind of take it to that ridiculous place and then rein it back in. So I, I lost where we were on time because of my, uh, my allergy attack. Yeah. So yeah, we can, um, I think we're about good on time. Uh, so if you, ha- if I, I'm assuming the next bit is the song itself. Yeah, we're so. gonna get into the song itself, and let's present oh, that all together. I'd like, yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was hoping we wouldn't have to break that up; just get it all together in one shot. So, so you want to ask some more ridiculous questions of the Bible? Uh, no, I, I think we're good. Oh, okay, fine. I mean, unless you have anything, <laughs> I don't. did you have anything specific? <laughs> no. So. no. Well, everyone, thanks for joining us. Um, sorry, we're a bit unhinged this week. It's a uh, everything's. It's like it was. It was so weird with the snowstorm and and just out of the blue, out of the out of well, the, the sky, gray. Was, <laughs> yeah, the darkness. It came at night. Um, yeah, I woke up and there was snow just everywhere. It was beautiful. Uh, I'll post some pictures of my backyard in the paddle store for anyone interested. But anyhow, um, yeah, thanks for joining us. If you were uh, enjoying that and want to come back and join us or be part of the conversation. RavenCreeksc.com is the website gets you to everything we do and Raven Creek SC on the social media RavenCreeksc at gmail.com there's a recurring theme here <laughs> Raven Creek SC will get get you to us um and uh <laughs> so other than that we'll see everybody next week thanks bye bye you've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast a Raven Creek Social Club production don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash SC. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.